0: Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. You're listening to our special World in Emotion series, highlighting the topics and speakers of the 2019 OECD Forum. Hello, I'm Clara Young, and I'm sitting here with Will Davies, who's a sociologist, political economist, and the author of a book that everyone's been talking about Nervous States How Feeling Took Over the World. Hello, Will. Hello. Well, what do you mean by nervous states in the title of your
1: book? So the title of the book is a pun in the sense that it refers to both nervous political states where governments, nation-states, are teaching on the edge of something relatively unstable, uh, perhaps quite unknown. We're not quite sure where this rather dangerous political moment is heading. But it also refers to nervous states in the more psychological sense of being uh, anxious, on edge, being over-attuned to potential threats and uh, potential enemies. And I think what those two things have in common is that our culture, our democracies and ultimately ourselves have grown increasingly uh, sensitive to change in the present to minute fluctuations in the news cycle, in the financial markets and so on. And our capacity to produce more uh, dispassionate, objective, um, slower uh, representations of the world, uh, politically, economically, socially, has arguably gone into decline as our heightened awareness of everyday movements in the political environment has created a kind of jumpiness in our Public and our private lives.
0: You begin the book by describing an incident that happened in Oxford Circus in downtown London in November 2017. What happened and why did you begin with that story?
1: Well, it was this, I suppose, sort of hoax uh, terror alert where um, the reports came from the London Underground on one of the busiest shopping days before Christmas, that there was some kind of attacker on the loose. Um, And this created a kind of ripple effect through the crowds on the underground and through the streets around uh, Oxford Circus, which is a very busy shopping area of West London. Uh, And the effect through the crowd, as people knocked into each other, as people began to panic and run, was to inflate the sense of fear and panic uh, and also to create some quite sort of tangible, uh, visceral um, evidence that there was actually something something going on. Uh, police arrived. Uh, they stormed Selfridges' department store. There was then a, a, the pop star Ollie Murs was inside Selfridges at the time and he tweeted to over a million followers, everybody get out of Selfridges, there's a, a shooter on the loose, um, there are police storming in and so on. The BBC started providing rolling coverage. The newspapers were providing providing real-time news blogs as to what was going on and of course there was huge amount of smartphone footage of these crowds running, screaming and so on. Now. At the end of all of this, it transpired that possibly someone had there'd been a small ruckus on the platform as the crowds got uh, too packed in. Someone might have pushed someone or something, but there was basically no original cause for this. Now, what interested me about that was lots of things. One was the sense of fear and of panic in crowd situations can take on a kind of life of its own, that it moves through crowds very, very rapidly, that people, when they're in situations or crowd situations, they... Uh, rely on instinct, they rely on all of their senses, they don't just rely on some idea of reason or a fact but necessarily we, we have to rely on things that our feelings and our bodies are, are telling us. But also the way in which it said told us something I think about our, our media uh, environment nowadays which is that it is we find out what is going on in our news um, environment today In real time, we don't wait until things have sort of unfolded and then been reported by journalists as we were forced to in the age of analog broadcasting and and print newspapers we effectively become kind of coordinated as observers and this becomes a kind of collective real-time experience in quite an emotional sense where no one knows how the story ends as it's unfolding. And that's a very different type of media environment from what we operated within only 20, 25 years ago. And I think these various aspects of this event, including both the bodily aspect, the sense of fear, the role of the media and of social media in this... And ultimately, I think also the, the fact that really the, the you don't even need there to be a a, a a real cause for all of these sorts of things, uh, in some sense summed up something about our present political and cultural moment.
0: When you talk about sort of the body uh, reasserting itself in this kind of new kind of real time, very fast knowledge, you you make the case that in Western societies we separated the mind from the body, going back to Descartes. And now, because of that, we have kind of two kinds of knowledge, the slow, Mm. the objective, rationality, uh, scientific reasoning from the enlightenment, Mm. and then this fast kind. Can you talk about the the bodily manifestation
1: I mean, I think that moment, I suppose before the Enlightenment really unfolded in the eighteenth century, you had this moment in the kind of the origins of the scientific revolution in the seventeenth century, where various philosophers um, and scholars and intellectual pioneers were interested in how the human mind could achieve a certain representation of the world. And there were those such as Descartes who believed that the mind is possessed of rational principles, which in some ways become manifest in mathematics and and geometry, where the fact that two plus two equals four is not in any way a matter of opinion, it's not a matter of perception, it is a a form of certainty that the mind can grasp, um, and which is given by God as far as Descartes is concerned, um, and which no sensory feelings about the world really have very little to do with. Um, The the way we encounter the world through our our bodies for Descartes is a matter of great uncertainty and of of doubt and things sometimes we get misled by how things look and appear. But rationality has a kind of concrete basis to it, which is outside of of time and space. It's not influenced by the vagaries of, of sentiment or emotion. Now, That is a a basis for for order and and for peace, and that's one of the themes in my book as well, is how that rationalist project was wedded to the search for peace in in early modern Europe, particularly in the, the work of people like Thomas Hobbes. But... Imagine oneself in a different type of environment, such as that environment in Oxford Circus in November 2017. We don't often, as human beings, uh, have the time and the space in order to try and understand the world in that rationalist, mathematical, necessarily quite deliberate, slow calculating way. And when we're in situations, particularly those which are moving very fast or those which um, are overwhelming or which are which are threatening in some ways, we necessarily rely on instinct, on our bodies, on how things feel and seem at the time. And that is a absolutely essential uh, evolutionary trait as much as anything else, because it's how we remain safe. And it's also the forms of human cognition, embodied cognition, um, real-time cognition, that become most crucial in situations of conflict and of warfare and much of the progress if you can call it that of technology and of science under conditions of conflict has been about augmenting the human capacity to know things very quickly rather than to know things very certainly Um, and you think of the technologies of the computer and the internet or radar. I mean, these are technologies designed specifically to speed up and to allow for rapid decision-making and to uh, maintain a real-time, somewhat paranoid uh, sensory awareness of the world rather than to produce the most certain and stable representation of the world. So that's the sort of tension in the history of knowledge that I'm interested in in the book and I suppose ultimately my argument is that that latter uh, quasi-military tradition of cognition which is real-time and multi-sensory and embodied has gradually over the second half of the 20th century especially usurped that more rationalist Cartesian tradition where knowledge is insulated from the hurly-burly of everyday life.
0: And so now, uh, as a result, we make decisions based on a feeling. We shoot from the hip. And where does the current rise in populism in politics come into in all of this?
1: Well, I think one thing that's happened is that... um some of that tradition of, of objective rationalist knowledge has not been protected very adequately. Many of the enemies of of the populace, the people who they, they charge with being the liberal elites in the media, in universities, working around governments, have often not necessarily done the, the best job of, of defending their independence from from power. Um, and I think that the idea that the experts and the, the elites are all in, in league with one another is a, one of the most powerful charges of populists. I mean, it was a crucial, I think, to the way Brexit, the Brexit campaign won in 2016 was, was to say, well, you know, these economists who are telling you that you'll be worse off if we leave the European Union, who are they and who voted for them? And, you know, aren't they all in the pockets of, 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 of governments and business? anyway, and so on. And some of those charges stick for quite a good reason. And parts of the media are clearly not acted with as much independence as, as they needed to. But I think one way in which populists such as Trump and, and, and Salvini and, and others succeed is that in this new media environment, which has developed in the digital age, there is such an overwhelming rush of content the entire time both the volume and the speed of content is so high that people really cannot no human mind can make sense of the amount of content that is being created and distributed all the time Um, and this means that the authority starts to belong to the person or potentially belongs to the person who says look this is too much this is overwhelming no one really knows what's going on I don't really claim to know. I realize that, and often this appeals very much to those who uh, have lower educational status in society, the kind of liberal graduate class. Um, Therefore, follow me, Uh, we're the same, I will make you safe. And that by making you safe, then we don't need to know with any objective certainty what's going on, because that is something which you can, you know, these all these liberal elites that that are they're claiming to do that—they haven't made you safe, they haven't recognised who you are, and maybe we don't need that type of objective knowledge in that tradition anyway. And maybe if they don't respect your view of the world, then who's to say that that they have the legitimacy anyway?
0: You know, in a report that the OECD just published called "Risks That Matter." There was a survey that was carried out last year asking 22,000 people in 21 OECD countries questions about their relationship with government. And the results were really quite striking because 59% of the people surveyed felt um, they don't get their fair share of public benefits given the amount of taxes they pay. Um, and 60% feel that their government doesn't listen to them. And this was true, especially among the highly educated and high-income groups. And Mm. the weirdest thing um, is that people feel this resentment even in OECD countries where there is quite a lot of income Mm. redistribution and a higher level of social benefits for lower-income people. So it's quite a big paradox, and it points to a serious perception problem Mm doesn't
1: it? Yeah, well I think that there's probably always been a naivety I think that, um, I mean part of my book deals with statistics which is obviously something which is very important to the OECD is that we can gauge progress by counting things, uh, measuring things seeking out averages, trends um, uh, finding representative samples of things and, and these sorts of things and I think there's a naivety in believing that that can become a substitute for democracy which I think was partly the, I suppose one of the sort of during the kind of heyday of, of liberal globalization in the 90s, I think there was a sense that, that numbers can convey everything we need to know about the world, um, and that people will carry on voting for whichever party makes the GDP go up by the largest number. Um, now, of course, GDP as a, as a indicator conceals all sorts of inequalities and injustices. I mean, just to take the United States as an example, we know thanks to the work of Thomas Piketty that 50% of Americans have had no increase in their real income since the late 1970s. I mean this is an astonishing um, discovery that GDP indicators give no sense of. uh, Equally Unemployment. Britain currently has the lowest unemployment rate since the early 1970s. But this does nothing to capture all of the underemployment, the involuntary self-employment, the stagnating wages, the people who whose jobs got significantly worse after the 2008 crash, the productivity crisis that Britain faces. And yet the government carries on sort of celebrating this indicator, which I think starts to provoke people after a while. Now, in terms of the actual finding that you've just referred to, I think we do now know, thanks to psychological research rather than economic research, that perceptions of progress are relative rather than absolute or aggregative. So if someone was to say, well, actually, your real income is twice as high as it would have been in 1970 or something like that, that actually what people... Uh, people's perceptions of welfare are to do with how I'm doing relative to others, how I'm doing relative to something in my own memory, some, obviously, sometimes relative to some fantasy of how things once were or should be or might have been. And of course, it's difficult to deal with that. But we do now know from research on the psychology of inequality and, and moral psychology that people's sense of well-being is far more influenced by by status questions. And status is always a relative issue. And that feeling of resentment, although it's connected to the economy, it's not a direct reflection of the sorts of things that economists have believed it lies at the centre of progress for the last 300 years.
0: Let's talk about uh, then how people are feeling because of that. You talk in your book about the opiate crisis, people are actually physically Hmm. feeling these uh, grievances.
1: Yes. If you look at some of the ways in which Western liberal democracies have have been going wrong over the last, particularly over the last 10 years since the financial crisis, they do have this very uh, bodily uh, aspect and this existential aspect that you've got these rising um, death rates in particular um, regional uh, areas of, of the United States and of the UK. Britain now has a, a recently recorded a, lo- a falling life expectancy um, against all expectations. I mean, it's lots to do with cuts to social care for the elderly means that it's not necessarily, a, you these are deaths that have come perhaps only sort of a few years earlier than they would have done otherwise. Nevertheless, statistically, this represents regress. And there are these regional disparities in places like France, where uh, Le Pen voters tend to live in areas with with much lower life expectancy, uh, with higher rates of morbidity and of physical pain. And, I suppose what I was interested in the extent to which maybe in some ways populism tests the kind of tidy assumption that we can intellectualize all of this and that in some ways some of the, the feelings that have entered politics don't come via the mind or via rational calculations of welfare or of interest, all of those kind of uh, early Enlightenment hopes, but actually stem from the condition of being a human being whose body is falling apart, or is closer to death than average, or is uh, generating a higher level of pain than average. I mean, there was this interesting discovery that some very strong senses of the Trump vote in 2016 clustered around these areas of these so-called deaths of despair that uh, Case and Deaton discovered in their um, very influential work on that. And I think that one thing I wanted to try and do with the book was to bring the body back in and to, I suppose, jolt people out of this straightforward liberal sense that Questions of politics could be easily um, can restrained to the realms of um, uh, intellectualization and and, and rational um, uh, evaluation and, and calculation.
0: My last question is this: Are there, besides the recognizing hmm. of these hmm. illnesses and these problems, uh, what are other remedies? Hmm. You've mentioned rule of law hmm.
1: to provide. Um, I suppose, better outlets and better channels for some of this emotional mobilisation. And I talk a bit about in the book of how an idea such as climate mobilisation will ally themselves to a kind of expert-led politics. The way in which... um, expertise becomes allied to these forms of popular movement which have got existential questions at their heart extinction rebellion you know but this is a question of who will get to live i mean how will they get to live and these are sort of you know the, the bringing to the surface of these um, fundamental questions of humanity i think is almost unavoidable right now
0: well thank you very much will it's been a pleasure And thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. Will Davies' book is called Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. Also, have a look at the OECD's Risks That Matter. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. For more on this topic, you can join the debate on the Forum Network at www.oecd-forum.org. To listen to more OECD Podcasts, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.